Hello and welcome to episode four of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jonah Carey. Jonah is a writer for Grantland and author of the book, The Extra 2%, How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Baseball Team from Worst to First. You can give Jonah a follow on Twitter at Jonah Carey and listen to his podcast available on iTunes and the Grantland Network. Jonah, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Uh, well, I grew up in Montreal and I was a big fan of the Montreal Expos and, uh, my grandfathers used to take me to games at a young age. Uh, I'd watch, you know, at their house, and they would take me to ball games at age seven or eight or whatever. And uh, it grew quickly. I grew to really like baseball. My dad bought me my first Bill James book. I was literally eight or nine years old. I think it might have been '83. And uh, so, it was, I guess, precocious with numbers, and uh, that played into it as well. And it just sort of spiraled from there. It's funny. I only played one year of Little League. I was a terrible baseball player. I played basketball my whole life. I was pretty good at basketball. Uh, but as far as following it and really digging into it and jumping on the numbers and getting to know the players and so forth, it was always baseball. Baseball was uh, was the one that, as an outsider, I tended to uh, gravitate to more. What was baseball culture like in Montreal? Growing up in Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, baseball's a big deal. And other cities, you know, Chicago and St. Louis, New York, baseball's a big deal. Was it a big deal in Montreal? It was a big deal in Montreal. And, uh, you know, one way to look at it is, and I'm writing a book about the Montreal Expos, which is going to come out in the spring of 2014, or at some point in 2014, likely spring. And I've got a couple of friends who played baseball growing up. One in particular I saw this past weekend, we had a big event at Rogers Center, where something like 200 Expos fans got together and sat in the bleachers and hung out, which was really cool, and nobody had done that in years and years, so that was fun. And I was talking to my buddy, and he said that he, you know, in each community, you would have seven levels of teams, basically. So if you were growing up in suburb X and you were this good, you'd be in level one and this good, level two, and so forth. That's like Boston or L.A. or Texas or anywhere else where you have multiple levels of competition and, you know, elite levels are the best players and might even go on, go on to be prospects. My buddy did end up pitching on the uh, in college for McGill at the varsity level, so he was pretty good. And uh, he just talked about that this was part of your culture. He said that there were 11 baseball diamonds within walking distance of his house, just in a random suburb of Montreal growing up. And like I said, I didn't play much, but he really had that, that grasp of it. So in, within the community, it was a big deal, certainly. The Expos were a little different because at first they drew a lot, and then as they got bad and other things happened, the attendance wavered somewhat. But just as far as the culture, as, as the day-to-day, you see diamonds, you see people going to play pickup in the park and so forth. Absolutely. That was a very big deal there. I think just as it is and was and will be in, in many Americans. You mentioned your dad buying you a Bill James book, and I had those too when I was a kid. Um, and some of those numbers I found fascinating, but it was still, as a kid, uh, growing up in the 80s, you still, I still grew up with RBI and wins, and those statistics have obviously been devalued in the sabermetric community. When did you take the turn into sabermetrics? Because I imagine you grew up with RBI and runs and wins, too. Yeah, I mean, I knew about them, obviously, growing up. But when I read Bill James, it definitely changed my mind pretty quickly. And uh, I was on it early, well before, way, way, you know, decades before Moneyball. I just... I don't know why. I don't know why I was so uh, such a doubting Thomas, I guess, as a kid. But it just it struck me that Bill James was uh, spoken in a very interesting way, and you know he, he wrote it in a very clear way. Like I said, I was you know I guess I was a smart kid, but you know eight nine years old still. You're eight nine years old, but he wrote in such a concise manner, in such a convincing manner, that it made me realize, hey, you know he's got a point here. So. I would pay attention to things like whatever the race for the Triple Crown, uh, Al Oliver, an expo from, uh, I played for a lot of teams. We played for the expos in 82, and he won the batting average title and the RBI title in 82. Well, both of those things we kind of frown on a little bit now. Not that they weren't accomplishments, but just lesser accomplishments. But at the time, it was a big deal, and they just, uh, you know, they acquired him that offseason at age 35, and I thought that was interesting. But as time went on, it definitely started to uh, to go the other way, and, and uh I think I joined Baseball Perspectives in 2002. It has been years and years and years before then that I turned the other way, that I'd say, you know what, I don't really care who wins the batting title. I'm not so concerned about who has the most RBI, just something about who wins games. I want to talk to you about the relationship between the traditional BBWAA members and the sabermetric community, because I think that relationship is flawed. I think it's flawed on both sides, and I think there's some obnoxiousness on both sides. What you hear frequently coming from um, stat geeks like myself and like you, Joan, I know you're one of them and have no problem identifying yourself as such, 
is that these people referring to traditional Hall of Fame voters or longtime writers know nothing about baseball. If they don't believe this, they know nothing about the baseball, which is really an obnoxious way of phrasing an argument. Uh, it puts people on the defensive, which no one's at their best when they're on the defensive. The reverse side of that is many traditional writers in, in traditional papers, huge respected newspapers, say things like, oh, these guys just need to go back to their mother's basement where they belong and live on their computers. There's such a level of obnoxiousness from both sides. I wonder if the obnoxious nature with some of the um, new metrics and how they're presented is one of the reasons why they haven't really taken over and gotten more mainstream acceptance. I actually strongly disagree with you and would suggest politely that you're making a straw man argument. I don't think that the leading analysts in the industry do that. I don't think Rob Nyer does it. I don't think Dave Cameron does it. I don't think any person of any stripe or any reputation or any kind of civility does that on the side of the uh, on the analytical side. I don't think that's true. I think that if you're talking about you know someone who's younger or not yet an established writer or whatever hasn't quite figured it out and is working on social graces, then goodness knows I was when I was 20 years old then you might do that because you've come across this new knowledge and you're excited by it. But anybody who's doing this professionally for a living and has been for a few years, it's very, very rare to see that level of, like you said, obnoxiousness. I don't think that's true. I also think that it's less true about the mother's basement thing. I think you're seeing more and more mainstream writers, even if they haven't fully grasped it, they're being a little bit more civil too. But I would submit to you that, you know, it's an age continuum thing, right? You can... There's only so young you can be before you embrace this stuff and kind of figure it out, whereas age continues as you get older and older. In other words, the 60-year-olds might be obnoxious in that way, the 70-year-olds or whatever, the Murray Chass kind of uh, type of writer where they come out off as being combative and so forth. So I think that it is, there is an imbalance in terms of the combativeness and in terms of how it goes. Now, is there a conflict? Well, sure, there's a conflict, but I think this comes down to something very simple and that's job security, quite frankly. If you are perceived as being a dinosaur or the industry is starting to perceive you that way, then you're going to lash out in some ways. And the threat comes from younger writers or younger commentators who might have a, uh, whatever, a different view. I don't want to say a more enlightened view, but let's say a different view that might be more accepted in other circles. And so, uh, you know, Murray Chess, I don't want to pick on the poor guy, but he had a tremendous career for years and years. I should be so lucky to be one-tenth as successful as he was. But he wrote for the New York Times for forever, and then he didn't. And uh, I don't think it was because, well, he didn't know OPS. I think the New York Times had economic concerns like every other newspaper that had to do with it. But the bottom line is, is his voice had been marginalized to a certain extent. And it's very hard for people to look inward and say, well, it's my fault. I didn't adjust to the Times. I didn't adapt. It's much easier to say, here's this big uh, bugaboo. You know, here's this big... Um, counterinsurgence that's, that's really going against it. And I would put this forth in any argument. This is the case in politics and business and so forth. And I have no doubt, by the way, that when I'm 65, I'm going to be ornery and complaining about something, and, and I'm sure it'll just be my fault. It'll be that I haven't adapted, and the younger generation has figured it out. I think this is a sort of a natural progression, and I don't put it on anybody. I don't think that it's anybody's fault. And, and uh, you know, wanting to preserve your job security and your credibility and your relevance, that's how human is that, right? Everybody does that, and that's what's going to happen probably to most of us, if not all of us, when we get older. So do you think that the stat community can do a better job presenting its information? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. My job specifically is to be a stats to English dictionary. I mean, that is literally what I do every single day that I'm on the job, on Twitter, uh, when I write podcasts, whatever. Not everybody does that. I think there are some people that do it differently, but I don't think that they have a, a moral obligation to do that. For instance... Um, you know, Tom Tango is a very accomplished uh, online writer and, and uh, has written some books and so forth. And he tends to come in as a little bit of a more complicated angle. Now he started in the last couple of years, he started to explain things a little bit better. But he's talking on a higher level. And it's not that easy to understand even for someone like me who consumes it. <clears throat> but so what? Why do I need to? Why is he required to do that? If you're an engineer, if you're a software engineer, do you need to be able to speak perfect, you know, completely precise English and just break it down to everybody? No, that's not their job. Steve Jobs' job is to explain, to, or was his job, to explain to you how it is that all the doodads that go into an iPhone work and how you can use it. Uh, well, I think I just inadvertently convert myself to Steve Jobs. I don't, I don't fancy myself as nearly as accomplished, <laughs> intelligent, or, or anything. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying there is a certain um, type of person whose job it is to explain things. So I don't think the whole community has to do this. I think that, again, I'll go back to a Rob Nyer or a Dave Cameron or, or people like that. I think I, I kind of fall into that class. 
uh, where I'm looking at data and I'm presenting in a way that people can understand. I don't really do regression analysis. I don't really do advanced math. I have a degree in journalism, but I can understand what the smart people are doing and I can relate it in a way that it will be easy to understand. And, and, uh, and it'll be polite, quite frankly. I'm not, uh, in real life, I'm a very uh, affable, amiable kind of person. And I think I come across that way in my writing. And there are others like me who can do that. So I don't think everybody has to do the whole stat community has to do that. But if you look to people like Rob and so forth, I think that that's the type of people that can that can get the message across in a way that will reach the masses and not piss anybody off. What's the next wave? Where are new numbers going? Well, uh, you know, defense has been one that we've looked at for the last couple of years. And I think it's just going to come down to more granular analysis in general. Everything that has FX at the end, pitch FX, hit FX, field FX, all this stuff, these, uh, these data that we can derive based on not only play-by-play, but also camera angles that we can look at it. You know, every stadium now has a camera and can say, well, you know, Derek Jeter's range, we don't think it's that good, uh, but here's exact proof. You know, he started this way, he started here, and he made three and a half steps, and he reacted this quickly or this slowly, and here's everything that went down. We're going to have the ability to do that, and not only do that, but extrapolate results. We'll be able to say, well, it turns out that Derek Jeter, let's say, wasn't as bad a fielder as we thought. It's that his manager position's been poorly, or whatever. We'll figure all this stuff out as we go along. And so I think it's that. Everything to this point has been, not everything, but a lot of things have been estimators. The advanced defensive stats that we have are based on estimates of where we think a ball will go and where we think people can field it. Uh, you know, who gets credit for a hit, whether it's a hitter or the pitcher or so forth, that's based on estimates. It's based on numbers that don't exactly compute to top spin and location and so forth. Well, we're going to be able to do all that too. So at first I think this is going to be, a little too nerdy for the masses, quite frankly. I think that people are just going to look at it and say, well, gee, I'm still going to focus on my old stats. But as we go forward, I think that it'll be something like everything else that's going to be embraced more widely, and it'll be very informative. We'll be able to say authoritatively, all right, here's the deal with this shortstop and this center fielder and this batter. We know what this person does, not only by their batting average or even by their OPS or war or what have you, but by the specific movements on the field. We are able to see with our own eyes what exactly happened on every play and every month and every season. Are front offices there yet? Are front offices doing that for defense? How different are the defensive metrics that front offices are using versus what's available to the public? Yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly ahead. They have, um, you know, field effects and hit effects and pitch effects. This stuff is out there. There are people that have access to the data. The problem is getting people to analyze it. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a guy named Mike Fast who uh, wrote online, and he wrote about uh, pitch effects for the most part. He's a physicist. So he understands this stuff really, really well. He can look at the drop on a curveball and, and tell you things that other people just can't, just can't come up with. If the data's out there and it says this guy had 10 hits and 30 at-bats, you and I, without thinking, can tell you that he batted 333. But if we have this pitch FX data out there, I can't speak to you, but I certainly don't have the ability to, to break it down as well as some other people will. These data are so advanced that you need people on a higher level and in the community, you know, in public, there aren't that many physicists around who are so obsessed with baseball that they're going to spend time doing this. In fact, I'd probably count them on one hand, and they've probably all been hired by teams at this point. So, yes, I think that, that those data are available, and the ability to break them down lies mostly with the teams because the teams recognize that it requires skilled personnel to do it, and so they snatch up that skilled personnel for their own uses. That's right. And Dan Brooks and Alan Nathan, two great followers right. on Twitter, they break it down as well. And it's it's like these guys are, have spent their entire adult lives studying science. To them, this is just secondhand. But to actually break down the physics as to why a curveball curves a specific inch versus another way, it's that's something that, unless you have a science background, you're just not going to be able to do. And I do not. Again, BA in journalism, no graduate degree, not particularly smart, just kind of figured out a little niche for myself, and that's about it. So I defer to the smart people here. You are listening to Jonah Carey. You can give Jonah a follow on Twitter at Jonah Carey and visit his website, JonahCarey.com. Jonah, I want to mix it up a little bit. I know you've spent a lot of time uh, looking at numbers and looking at the history of the game. I wonder if the baseball community as a whole is putting too much weight into the accomplishments of players who played in the late 1800s and early 90s. The game was still in its infancy. There was no advanced scouting or minor leagues. The game was segregating. Gambling was rampant. And there was no videotape or film. It seems like we all just take those numbers at face value when we make the all-time great team, Lou Gehrig, Hannes Wagner, uh, Roger Hornsby, they're all still on it. Do we really believe that every all-time great player just happened to be born in the late 1800s? Well, no. I mean, a lot of it has to do with nostalgia and a lot of it has to do with just the gravity of those numbers. I mean, nobody did 400 in, in a long, long time, and 
know, Rogers Hornsby had 400, I believe, more than once. I wonder if he did it multiple times. And yeah, I mean, those numbers are going to stand out to you. But you know, of course, it's not the case that all the best players played from then. And I would submit to you that if there was some time travel and they came back and they played today, that they would not be nearly as good. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And it starts with the fact that you play baseball year-round instead of having to shovel coal. Literally, people just had these manual labor kind of jobs. Nutrition was different. And healthcare. goodness, Tommy John surgery changed everything. And that was only a generation ago. Tommy John surgery was the year I was born, in fact. So uh, that, weight training, everything. Everything has changed quite a bit. Maybe if uh, you know some of these players came forward and had – didn't have the access to the new stuff, well, sure, they wouldn't be as good, but maybe if they did, then they would be uh, fairly good. But I think the other thing we have to look at is what the competition is. You know, if you talk about Hannes Wagner, Hannes Wagner didn't just compete only against white players. He competed against white players that literally were just playing pickup across the street. I mean, there was no scouting. There were no farm systems. He just sort of it was word of mouth who was going to make Major League Baseball. Generally, the cream rises, but I strongly suspect there were people back then that could have been great baseball players that never made it to the, many people that never made it to the major leagues because who knows? They were in Sheboygan or whatever, and they were on a farm, and nobody found out, and there was no way to know. Whereas, you know, starting with Branch Rickey, really, we developed farm systems. We started getting into scouting, and we started getting into international scouting. I mean, everything just blew up. And, of course, we got into integrating the game as well. It stops being just white players, and it changed. So I, I think that if you look at it and you're just talking about whose accomplishments are the most impressive, I mean, I go to whatever, Chipper Jones or, or Pedro Martinez or Barry Bonds or people of the, la- of the last few years of this generation because this is the toughest competition. Everybody's training harder. You're pay- playing against the best Japanese players and African-American players and Koreans and Venezuelans and Dominicans and what have you. So I think it has changed. And I think that the, the proper way to do this, because you can't wipe out history entirely, is just to say, Let's look at how they were according to their peer group. We acknowledge that Hannes Wagner's peer group was not very good, but we say Hannes Wagner was so far and beyond, above and beyond, so far above, that we have to give him some credit in some sense. And so he can continue to rank highly on those lists, even if we were being honest with ourselves and we said, well, what what was Wagner up against versus what is Derek Jeter up against? Certainly Jeter has faced just way, way tougher competition. And that's right. And the Jeter gets criticized for not having the range that modern shortstops have. If Jeter was playing in 1908 with his range, he would have got to every ball hit. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and then you've got other things going on. The ball was much slower then. I mean, it was dead and you couldn't get, couldn't do anything with it. The bats weren't the same. Everything was different. I mean, now you've got these whipsaw bats that people just, you could just generate so much torque and so much bat speed now. And it, it really has changed a lot. Things have really changed. And uh, like you said, I mean, it's a very, very different game. Still the same roots, still the same rules, which I think is also part of the reason that people harken back to those days, whereas, you know, basketball, what, you used to be a time that the basketball didn't fall out of the bottom of the net. You literally had to pop it back out and play again. I mean, that was different. <laughs> it was a different sport. Baseball has stayed just about the same for more than 100 years, and I think that's what makes people so obsessed with the continuity and with the stats, by the way, and I think that's part of the reason people get all upset about PEDs is because they say, well, gee, you know, Babe Ruth set this record. If it's the same game and the conditions are changing, then what gives with that? And, of course, I would argue that the conditions have changed in other ways, too, with the height of the mounds and, and integration and so forth. So, yeah, you know, in some ways the game is very much the same, and in some ways it has become different. Well, and I had Bob Ryan on. Bob was the uh, first guest of the podcast, and Bob has done you know, covered more things and has had more success as a columnist than most people ever will. He's been honored by the Basketball Hall of Fame. And uh, I've known Bob for a long time from working in radio in Boston. He's truly one of the most knowledgeable sports people I've ever met and I ever will meet. And Bob and I were talking about how baseball, I use the term clings to the past. And he got upset with that term because he said that the marriage between past and present is what makes baseball unique. And he's right. But no other sport does this when evaluating their all-time great players. When people make their lists of the best quarterbacks now, Otto Graham is not on the top of anyone's list. When people make their list of the best running backs ever, while Jim Brown still may make it, Emmitt Smith is there, Walter Payton's there, Barry Sanders is there. In basketball, no one's like, hey, George Mikan, he's so much better than David Robinson. But we still do that with baseball. Yeah, that's. I mean, that goes to the previous point. I don't really have an argument for that. I think that that's true, and I think it has to do with uh, clinging to the past, I think, somewhat, but again, just... That to the naked eye, or, or from a distance, it would seem that the game has stayed the same. Again, I go back to nutrition and healthcare and then mound size and integration and all this stuff. It has become different, but it's just, you know, if you close your eyes and you just start looking at film, you know, it can look the same. There can be similarities. And so I think that's what people come back to. 
And, you know, I think that there's something psychological to be said for it, too. I mean, George Mikan was, uh, was he 6'10 or 6'11? And he was considered, wow, he was an absolute giant. There was nobody like him. Well, he's a small forward. Small forwards, like Kevin Durant is taller than, you know, Mikan was. And Kevin Durant could play shooting guard if he wanted to. The game, just people have changed so much. And I think in baseball, and of course the bodies have changed in baseball too, but there's still this romantic notion that if you're 5'11", 160 pounds, or 5'8", 160 pounds, you can still play ball. And there are guys, I mean, there are these Michael Bourne types who are very good baseball players, very, very good, and they're going to make a lot of money for being very good. And the thought is that you can succeed in basketball. You can't play center at 6'3 anymore, whatever, that doesn't exist, but it did exist back then. And so I just think it's a matter of the size of it. Goodness, football, I mean, you want to talk about physical change, my God, the running backs now are bigger than the nose tackles were 50 years ago. I mean, you have running backs who are 250 pounds, and they're running a 4640 or whatever. I mean, it's just they're not the same humans. It's just a totally different thing. Yes, it is the case that Mark McGuire is a behemoth and Barry Bonds and so forth, and, and people have gotten bigger, but not to the same extent. We're just talking about degrees of, of difference between uh, basketball and football, especially from now to then. Let's shift over to PEDs. When was the first time you heard of baseball players using steroids? Well, I mean, the first time I suspected it, I was before I was a professional baseball writer. I was writing about business before I became a baseball writer. But, you know, you always had your, your feelings about it. I mean, if you want to be a historian, you go back to someone like Ted Klazuski. He was a huge weightlifter back in the 50s. And now, years later, there's some uh, intimations that there might have been something that he consumed. We don't know what it was. We assume it wasn't illegal because the laws were totally different. But he might have had some helpers. That doesn't mean that he wasn't accomplished at what he did. And, and uh, weight training was certainly very noble and so forth. But, uh, you know, we don't know. And I think that things like, you know, if you want to talk about PEDs, well, amphetamines are a PED. I mean, yes, you can use amphetamines for other reasons, but you can also use it to make yourself a better baseball player. And they were in clubhouses like, like M&M's in the 60s, you know, in the 70s. They were literally on the trainer's table. There would be bowls of these things, of these green little pick-me-ups, and you take them because it's the second day of a doublehead, you know, second game of a doubleheader in August, and you played 14 days in a row and, you know, 140 of 141 games to that point, whatever. And you're dead tired and you just have no ability to do anything. You pop a couple of those and you feel better. You are enhancing your performance. You don't have to be big and muscular to enhance your performance. There are all kinds of ways you can do it. Golfers take beta blockers so they can control their emotions when they putt. I mean, you know, everything enhances your performance in some way. Cortisone shots, whatever. What we decide is a PED, what we decide is a big, bad, evil, and not, a lot of it has to do with aesthetics. And again, going back to that whole preserving the illusion of it. Well, you know, if the second baseman back in the day were 160 pounds and now they're 210, that bothers me. But if they're still 160, but they're all doped up on amphetamines and beta blockers and whatever, yeah, I'm okay with that. That's fine. They don't look all that different. It's fine. Maybe it's possible that if you take whatever, which you, whatever you want to call traditional steroids, has a greater level of efficiency boosting than some other thing. That's certainly possible. Certainly possible doubling your home run output is more useful to players than uh, whatever, staying awake during the second game of a doubleheader. I, I'm willing to go along with that, but that doesn't mean that other PEDs didn't exist. I mean, you got to go back years and years and years. That's Willie Mays' days when people were popping stuff like that. And out in the open about it, by the way, nobody made any secrets about the fact that those were readily available. It's just that somehow it's been swept under the rug now because we're all out to get Roger Clemens or something. Yeah, and I agree, and I find this fascinating because ethically, when you look at the ethics behind, if you're using a drug to build muscle mass, if you're using a drug to recover cover from injury or if you're using a drug that is to boost energy if the drug is illegal or you're using it against what it's prescribed causes ethically i don't see the difference while they may do different things to your body they may do different things to your physique they may enhance performance differently i don't see any difference ethically between the players of the 50s taking amphetamines and players today taking steroids that's right and i think i see both argue both sides of the argument too i mean one side of the argument says you know, if you're using and somebody else isn't, then you're getting an unfair advantage, which is true, you know, I, I guess so far as it goes. But but here's what I would submit to you, and I, I, I'll tell you, quite frankly, that I do mean libertarian, and I mean lowercase libertarian, not crazy libertarian, I guess. I just believe that people <laughs> should be – self-determination is fine, and, you know, if I'm not harming anybody directly, then that's fine, and I don't really have much patience for – for prosecuting people for being gay or black or doing whatever. It's fine. It's all fine. You know, just, just do your thing and don't kill anybody and I'm okay with it. That's sort of my life stance. And so if you want to talk about it, there was a pill that could make me a uh, 10% better writer. And it's, I know it's not going to harm me because science has advanced so far that the side effects are minimal to nil. 
why the hell wouldn't I take that? What 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 incentive would I not have to do that? If I'm a 10% better writer, then maybe my next book sells more copies. And if my next book sells more copies, guess what? Maybe I could send my kids to Harvard instead of whatever, the, the crappy community college down the street. This is a no-brainer. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't do this, to be honest with you. Morality, morality is relative. You know, if the other writers aren't taking a pill to make them better, well, that's sort of their problem, dude. I'm out for myself and I'm out for my family and, you know, my friends and people around me and, that's just how I feel about it. And, you know, I don't know why baseball has to be that different. Yeah, I get it. There are records at stake. And, you know, maybe you're blurring the line between cheating and not cheating. But just from a human standpoint, humans have a desire to get better. It's just That's the American dream, right? The American dream is to achieve more, to make more, to get a bigger house, to do this and that, and more wealth and so forth. And suddenly you're saying, well, no, 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 that's no good. We have to change up the rules a little bit. You can only achieve more up to a certain point. I mean, that's bogus. That's not how humans work. That's certainly not how 22 and 23 and 24-year-old humans work. I can tell you that much. And so I'm sympathetic. You know, if they feel that they need to go out and do it, I'm certainly sympathetic to the minor league lifer, the guy who's the 25th man on the team who's trying to get ahead because his career could be fleeting and he really will not make much money. But you know what? I have to tell you something. I'm a little bit sympathetic to Barry Bonds, too. Barry Bonds was a great player. He would have been a Hall of Famer. But Barry Bonds decided he wanted to be the greatest hitter of all time, and he went for it. I probably would have gone for it, too. Maybe it's not right. Maybe it's not moral, but that's how I feel about it. I ask this next question as someone that's a non-drug user. I don't even drink. I've never smoked a cigarette. But I ask why we view drugs and the enhancements with drugs in terms of um, performance building differently. You look at the tennis rackets the tennis players play with today compared to what they even played with in the 80s. It looks like they're playing a different game. And as a result, everyone hits the ball harder. You look at golf clubs. They're designed by scientists to hit balls further. And the balls themselves are designed to travel further. In 2008, in the Sydney Olympics, the swimmers were setting records. And every, everybody was setting records because they were wearing some sort of special suit that made them faster. Now, the IOC banned the suit for the 2012 games. But it's sort of like, why do we view advancements in drugs differently than we do advancements with equipment or surgery or medical procedures? Why is it different than any other form of science? Because drugs are icky. That is honestly the reason. It's just that <laughs> I really, you, you think that there's this complex reason there isn't. Why are people so against gay marriage? Because it's icky. I mean, yeah, there's evolutionarily, it's not an ideal situation. You mean you have to adopt a kid instead of create a kid or whatever, but it's just that it's icky. And we are a society governed by ickiness. We just, that's how we operate. And people have a hard time getting away from that. And, and I mean, this is something that has been vilified way back... Why was there marijuana prohibition back in the day? Because it was a lobby against hemp farmers who had the ability to do things, and different farmers said, well, wait a minute, we don't want these guys. We're going to ace these guys out of the business. We don't want them making rope or clothes or whatever, so we're going to link hemp to marijuana, we're going to get marijuana out of there. And that's what happened. Marijuana went away, and it got vilified, and then it became a gateway drug, and then cocaine was bad, and heroin was bad, and whatever, and everybody does anything to themselves. It's a terrible tragedy, and once somebody thinks of the children, and everything is bad, society's collapsing, and we're all moral disasters. That's really what it is. And, and PEDs are just an extension of that. It's an extension of just looking for a scapegoat and, and just saying, well, you know, this is happening and it's icky, but golf clubs are no problem and so forth. And I just think it's just such a visceral thing for people that's been foisted on society for years and years. Yes, again, this is my lower case L libertarian leanings calling out. But I think, I, honestly, I think I'm right. I think that it's just an ickiness factor and I'm not sure exactly who is harmed. Yes, it's not necessarily a level playing field, but then just legalize it, make everybody do it. You know, my fr- I have friends who jokingly, and I think it's might have even been a Saturday Night Live sketch at some point, whatever, the all PED Olympics, just be out in the open about it. Just write all you want, dope all you want, do all you want. You know, if you're really at the, at the highest level of technology and you are taking things right up until the legal limit, then what's the difference if you go a little bit further? The whole Lance Armstrong thing it's so preposterous to me because every single biker dope. It's just that Lance Armstrong wrote a, a, won a lot, so he gets vilified. That's why you see Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens get vilified the most because they're the best. But people just get upset about this stuff, and and I think that they will get about this uh, upset about this stuff indefinitely into the future because it's icky. That's all there is to it. How much do we know about PEDs in relation, specifically steroids, and how much they actually increase performance with baseball? Well, we don't know that much. I mean, uh, you know, I. I I like. I'm not a scientist, but I like science. My wife is a scientist, and and uh, so I'm just surrounded by scientists, science, and scientists a lot. And uh, the proper way to do a correct study is to do a 
double blind study basically is to look at it and say, okay, you know, we're going to take two, two uh, subject groups. They're not going to know who's taking a placebo and who's taking whatever. They're just going to assume they're all taking, uh, you know, the PED and we're going to see what happens. And we're going to track them longitudinally over two years, five years, whatever. And we're going to see the results in performance changing no variables, by the way, that means they all have to work out the same. They'll have to eat the same diets. They'll have to live in the same city. They'll have to play in the same ballpark. They'll have to face the same pitchers. That's not something that exists. We can't do that in nature. Baseball doesn't work that way. We don't, first of all, we would never run a control group where we would just stuff people full of steroids. At least I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, and it's certainly not going to happen with baseball players. So we're not going to be able to know exactly. We can only look at piecemeal evidence and we could say, well, you know, this guy juiced and this is what happened to him and this guy juiced. But I'll tell you something, Alex Sanchez juiced. Alex Sanchez was a 150-pound outfielder who played for the Devil Rays, and he was terrible. He never hit for power. He never did anything much better. A Manny Alexander juiced. He was a terrible shortstop, really one of the worst shortstops of the last 30 years. He juiced, you know, for years, and nothing really came of it. So yeah, it has to do with body type. It has to do with how much you work out. It has to do with how much your body reacts to it chemically, what you ingest, when you ingest it, how you ingest it. There are just all these things on the table, and humans are bad about nuance, terrible about nuance. And so all we can do is say, Barry Bonds, he, he good, he better. I, I don't like that. It icky. Let me get rid of that. That's what it is. We just, we're Neanderthals in that respect, and we can't do better than just pointing the figure at the guy who seems most obvious and the guy who seems to be the best. That's all we can do. I agree. And one of the um, two people who I find interesting to look at with PEDs are Ozzy and Jose Canseco. They're mm. twins, so their bodies would react in a similar fashion to drugs, at least we could assume that that would be the case, they had the same body type, the same physique. They were both gigantic, muscle-bound guys. Uh, Jose said recently, I think he said this on Twitter in a, in a column with the, one of the papers in Oakland, that he and Ozzy lived together. They used the same steroids. They ate the same diet. They trained together. They did everything the same. Ozzy Canseco hit zero career home runs. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. They were both, by the way, in Expos uh, spring training camp at one point because I got to throw an Expos link as much as possible. Um, yeah, no, of course that's that is a great example. It's one example, but it is a great example, and it's just we don't know. You know, people. Let me put it to you this way: in PEDs, but I think in anything, anybody who pretends that they know everything is just full of it. It's just we can't. That's not how life works. I go back to the word nuance. Life is full of nuance. Life is full of things that we can know. We do our best to know them, but I find the people that have the most wisdom, and again, I don't mean to, to, to pat myself on the back, it's inadvertent, but I think that if you are aware of what you don't know, that's a really good start. That's a really good start to being somebody who can, uh, who can process things intellectually in, in a reasonable way. And uh, I just get turned off by people who think that they know everything. And, and this is one of those cases where the people think they know everything. You've got people who have no medical knowledge, no scientific knowledge, and they're weighing in on PEDs and they're saying with authority, well, this happened and that happened and this guy and that guy. Come on, man. There could be a team of scientists and they wouldn't know either because they don't have the proper data. And you know, you know who's a whatever, an accountant or a truck driver or a lawyer or someone who just – it does not have the skills. There's no way you know. There's no way. I totally agree. And it reminds me of what people do with climate change. Every scientist in the world who studies the climate believe, that, <laughs> believe in climate change and global warming. You know who doesn't? Dave who drives a truck. Who cares about Dave who drives a truck's opinion? Why is that relevant when every scientist says something else? Well, and I think this gets into, and this is going a little further afield, but this gets into things that become political. If facts are in some people's minds viewed as political, that if you you know if you say, well, this is happening, global warming or whatever else, and here's all these data, you say, well, uh, that's for the other side, and we could debate it on both sides, and, and that's I mean I find that to be a frustrating thing in society. Period is that you know if you look at the media and they're reporting on anything, well, we got this guy's side of the story and that guy's side of the story. Well, this guy's a murderer and the other guy is a perfectly fine civilian, but we're going to look at it from both sides of the coin. Why? Why? It's not balanced reporting is not. Yes, I learned that in journalism school, too. But you also have to use a critical eye. You also have to understand what is true and what is not true. And you can find that data will tell you what's true and what's not true politically, economically or whatever. And I just think we just don't do that. We allow both sides to have a voice and one side is often wrong. And I don't mean that as a left right uh, situation. Yes, global warming happens to fall on the left right uh, spectrum, but I don't think that's always the case necessarily. I just think that the data versus non-data debates are silly and ridiculous. I don't understand how you can come to any fight with no data and, and be respected at all. I don't get why people like that have a voice. 
I've done a lot of Hall of Fame research. I know you look at it as well. And we're at a point now where the guys who have been associated with PEDs or even in cases like Jeff Bagwell, and I suspect we're going to see this with Mike Piazza this year as well, never been associated with PEDs, are being kept out of the Hall of Fame. I think this is a gross distortion of history. I think to put all the blame on the players and the players alone when they had team trainers, physicians, and coaches recommending use to players, there was no testing in place. I think keeping them out of the hall is a gross distortion of history and a colossal mistake. What do you think? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that's the case. Well, let's start with this. I mean, Jeff Bagwell has never been found to do anything. He's got the numbers put in the Hall of Fame. That's the easiest level. Before we get into one somebody thinks of the children, he just hasn't been found to do anything. He's, he's muscular and he played in the 90s. That's the argument against why you put him in the Hall of Fame. That can't be. That's not reasonable. He has to be in there. Okay, so now you want to get into Bonds and Clemens and so forth. Listen, I'm slightly more sympathetic to that anti-argument. I, I, at least I can get it. Okay, you're saying, well, those, these guys bent the rules or they broke the rules. By the way, the rules uh, weren't really enforced, weren't really even in place until well into the odds. And so you can make an argument that these guys didn't really break anything because they were just going along with what, was, what the laws of land were. But fine, if you want to say that this happened and that happened, I'm slightly sympathetic to that. But I just look at it like this. If I go, this is a museum. You know, people are going there to look at, not only to look at plaques, to look at whatever, with the uniform that Babe Ruth wore and so forth. As a fan, if I want to go to Cooper Center, and I've been a couple of times, I'm going to go there and I'm going to see a generation that didn't exist. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. How could Barry Bonds not be in the Hall of Fame just for his impact on the game? Whatever he took or didn't take and whether it was legal or didn't wasn't legal, how could he not be there in a museum that documents things? If I go to the uh, whatever, you know, if I go to a, just a history museum, I'm going to see things about Pol Pot just like I'm going to see things about George Washington. Pol Pot was part of history, not a good part of history, but he was part of it. And we can't ignore it. Just like you can't ignore George Washington, who made significant, did great things that were to the good. I, I just think, and I'm not saying that, again, for, for, to make clear, I'm not comparing Barry Bonds to Pol Pot, just as I'm saying I'm not Steve Jobs. <laughs> Let's establish that right here. But, you know, you have negatives and positives, and this is an important part of history, and I think it needs to be recognized. And the people that decide this are, again, the Baseball Writers Association of America. Who are they to be the moral arbiters for a society? When did this come up? You know, there's supposedly a morality clause in the Hall of Fame ballot, but it's so nebulous, you know, it's so silly, and you've got wife beaters, and you've got just scoundrels of people. God, back in the day, Ty Cobb was a horrible person, but he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, these things are so crazy to me. And by the way, Ty Cobb should be in the Hall of Fame, too. I agree. And Ty Cobb was a racist who actively used his power as the best player in the game to keep yeah. minorities from playing. There were players yeah, who... Did that before Ty Cobb. I mean, this, is, this has happened forever. Absolutely. And look, we put in, even beyond players, Tom Yockey's in the Hall of Fame. Tom Yockey, who... Are you kidding me? The last owner to sign an African-American player? It's, a, it's an embarrassment. And some of the players, look, Eddie Murray was just charged with SEC fraud and insider trading. There are drug addicts and alcoholics. There are people who have DUIs and spousal abuse. It's awful. The idea of sports writers deciding morality appalls me in so many levels. But it's never used the other way. It's only used to keep people out. You never hear of a borderline Hall of Famer who's a great guy who gets in because he did a lot for charity. You never hear about that. You never hear about someone who won three Roberto Clemente Awards getting in because they were a good guy and gave back to their community. It doesn't exist both ways. It only exists to keep people out. I like that. I think that's an interesting argument. Dale Murphy has always been known as a, as a gentleman. You know, within the game, people respected and so forth. Dale Murphy's a borderline Hall of Famer statistically. Yeah, you know what? If you want to go over the top with somebody, by the way, Dale Murphy's still a better Hall of Famer than some of the guys that are in there. If you want to go with a borderline candidate and so forth, all right, I'm in with Dale Murphy. That's fine. I'll go along with that. I actually like that clause. I think that's a pretty good idea, actually. Yeah, and it's interesting with Murphy. Murphy, actually, he is borderline, but he falls below standards. But no one, no one, not one person has ever said, I'm voting for him because I think he was a good guy. And I, the, the character clause says that we need to evaluate character. So I do want to give uh, Dale Murphy credit because he was a good guy who helped people and gave back to charity. I've never heard that once with one person voting for him. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, and it's funny, I mean, writers famously will go against people, maybe less for Hall of Fame voting slightly, but certainly for award voting or whatever, if they just think the guy's a jerk. I mean, that's what it comes down to. They just won't vote for them 
for that reason, forget about whether they used or didn't use or so forth. Barry Bonds should have won like 12 MVPs, honestly. I mean, he should just won an MVP every time he's played. He the Terry Pendleton good. year is one of the more yeah, embarrassing listen, decisions. I mean, the Braves, you know, that was that they had a big year where it wasn't expected that they would win and so forth. I've met Terry Pendleton. Terry Pendleton falls, falls in the Dave, Dale Murphy class, by the way. He's a wonderful man. He still is. But Barry Bonds was a better player than Terry Pendleton that year, any year. And, and he was a better player than other players in other years, too. I mean, Jeff Ken won the MVP. How did Jeff can't get all those RBIs? Well, Barry Bonds had like a 900 on base percentage. That's how that happened. You know, it's just, this is how it is. We're just, we let emotion get in the way of this stuff. Are we supposed to or not? You know, it's a funny thing about debates for MVP or, or Hall of Fame or so forth. We could sit here and say, let's do the right thing. Let's honor the people that by the data deserve to get in. But I'm telling you something. I don't think Major League Baseball minds all that much that all these raging debates happen because it keeps things interesting. If we just elected the guy who was had the highest wins above replacement for MVP or Cy Young or the Hall of Fame, what's the fun in that? You know, if you want to look at it that way, you could say, well, you know, then Jack Morris doesn't come anywhere close and Burt Blylevin is in by a mile. Yeah, but you know what? The Jack Morris-Burt Blylevin debate has been frustrating, but I think kind of fun and also has kept both of those guys' names in the news. They're both very good pitchers, certainly. Yep. They're not Walter Johnson or whatever, but you know somehow this became this huge debate for our times about these two guys based on stats. You know, based on stats versus the human eye. Eh, you know, I, I'm a little bit again a little bit sympathetic to that too. I get it. I get why baseball would want to create interest and debate, barroom debate, whatever in their sport, and this does a good job of doing it by not hewing directly to data. You set up these debates. They might be wrong-headed debates, but they are debates. You know what the Morris Blyleven thing is? It's an example on both sides of the sniff test gone wrong. Mm, the sniff test overvalues Jack Morris. Jack Morris was great in 1991 in one of the best postseason games ever. Jack Morris always had a reputation that he never lived up to. Burt Blylevin never had that reputation. Burt Blylevin fails the sniff test. If you just look at their numbers blankly, it's Blylevin by a mile. The thing about Blylevin that's so interesting is that even his traditional numbers, there's been a lot of talk about how his advanced numbers to help him get in the Hall of Fame, his traditional numbers are deserving. Look at his ERA, his wins, and his strikeouts. Those are all Hall of Fame numbers. He just failed the sniff test. The sniff test needs to die. I hate the sniff test, especially when it comes to the Hall of Fame, but I find the Morris and Blylevin thing fascinating. Even Reggie Jackson did this recently, who played against both guys. Yeah. And uh, Reggie Jackson was very critical of Burt Blylevin being in, and he said that the biggest mistake is Jack Boris being kept out as he was the best pitcher of that generation. Uh, that's I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what Jackson said. It's just a case of the sniff test gone wrong. Well, my favorite thing about the Reggie Jackson thing, forget about Morris, he called out several players who had higher wins above replacement than Reggie Jackson did, who by at least that one standard, I'm not saying it's perfect, you could argue had better careers than Reggie Jackson did, or at least comparable careers. He said Gary Carr doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Come on, man. What? Of course Gary Carr deserves to be. Forget about my Expo allegiance. Of course he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He's he cut your Expo so- blood right there. He cut your Expo blood right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, Carter. as a catcher, how many catchers have had better numbers than Gary Carter? Three, four? I don't know. He's got to be up there. So, yeah, it's just... It's a silly thing, and, 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 you know, the human eye, we're all flawed. Again, I go back to, do we have the ability to recognize that we're wrong or not? I know I'm wrong all the time. I wake up, I get out of bed, I'm putting my kid, taking my kids to school. I'm wrong 20 times by the time I drop them off. That's it. Just recognize your faults. Don't assume that you're omniscient. Look to data. Look to things that will help, uh, you know, help you make your decisions. You don't have to be right. Your first sniff test, your first eye test does not have to be proven right by skewed data, by skewed views or whatever, just go with whatever's out there. Just try to be a little bit more objective. I know it's not easy. Subjectivity is easy and objectivity is hard. But life is hard. Go for it. Think a little bit. I don't know, Reggie. Think a little bit. I want to ask you if... Given everything that happened with the steroid era, some records fell, maybe some accomplishments would not have happened had people not been using PEDs. Now we're seeing a generation of players being kept out of the Hall of Fame. All of the narrative that's been written about the steroid era. Was the steroid era, considering where baseball was after the strike, good for baseball? Uh, well, it raised interest in the game. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote. I was uh, moved from D.C. to L.A. in 1999. I drove across country, and uh, we went to a few stadiums, and one of them that we went to was St. Louis, and the Cubs were playing the Cardinals at the time. It was a midseason game. Well, I'm not sure about this, but I want to say that one of those teams was not in the thick of contention, necessarily. Uh 
and and you know it was hot or whatever. I mean, it wasn't. It was a nice day for baseball, but it wasn't like oh, this is the World Series or whatever. They sold out that stadium. I'm not talking about old crappy Bush Stadium. We sat, I believe we sat on the upper deck. We didn't have good seats at all, and it was packed. Everywhere was packed. Why was it packed? Because it was the Cubs and the Cardinals. Sammy Sosa against Mark McGuire. Yes, the Cubs and the Cardinals do have a big rivalry, but I would submit to you that a few years earlier, that game does not sell out because they don't have very uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. What happened? You could check me on this, but as far as I remember, and maybe my memory's faulty, but I believe Sammy Sosa hit two home runs and Mark McGuire hit one. Well, that's a big deal. And people had their flashbulbs up every time those guys came to the plate. It was a very, very big deal. It raised interest in the game. It raised attendance. It got TV deals. And these things are still being felt now. The way that any negotiation works, if I have a salary, if I'm making $50,000 and I go to my boss, they're going to base my next salary based on my $50,000. If I'm coming in at 100, they can't cut my salary by 50%. They say, all right, we'll give you whatever, 110 on your next or 120. That's how it works. That's how it works with TV deals. The TV deals expanded in those days. Yes, part of it was just you know, demand of the market and so forth. But part of it was just baseball was very popular. And so the reason the teams are very prop- profitable now has to do with that era. It all snowballed from there. So for the vibrancy of the game, for the ability of teams to make profits and to put, put good product on the field and, and deliver just better things to us that we can consume, oh, sure, I think it was absolutely positive to the game. Again, that's, you know, a, a libertarian, maybe also somewhat of a utilitarian, but it's absolutely the case that it helped the game. I don't think there's any question about it. I want to switch off of PEDs for a moment um, before we wrap it up. I want to ask you about something that I'm fascinated by, especially today in a game that every game is on television, on the radio, with so much information available and online, more people are covering baseball than ever, is how players get overvalued and undervalued, how players get overrated and underrated. What are the main reasons a player gets overrated or underrated? Uh, well, it has to do with skills, basically. I mean, the guys who are diverse, who, who do a lot of things well, and not necessarily things that are sexy are going to get underrated. Walks, doubles, defense, uh, efficient base running, things like that. Those are not home runs, those are not RBIs, and they're not batting average. And so they're going to get overlooked to a certain extent. I mean, Bobby Abreu, and I mean, toward the end of his career, wasn't that good, but was for years and years one of the most underrated players in baseball because he hit doubles and he walked and he had a high on-base percentage. And he was, uh, for a while anyway, a pretty good fielder, not later, but he was okay at the beginning. And he ran well. He rarely got thrown out at the bases. He rarely got thrown out trying to steal and so forth. That's what's going to happen. Alan Trammell was a player like that. Alan Trammell also, you know, you look at these round numbers, right? Everybody looks at 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. But there's no recognition that it's a shortstop who does that is literally one of the 10 best players of all time. If you have 3,000 hits and 500 home runs and you're shortstop, you are a god. If you're a first baseman and you do it, you're a very, very good hitter, but you're not a god. You're a little bit different than that. And people don't have the ability to recognize that. It has to do with nuance. It has to do with sliding scale. And I think that plays into it, too. When you see certain positions that are underserved in the Hall of Fame, third baseman, I believe there's only 10 third basemen in the history of baseball that have ever, ever gotten in. Why is that? Well, it's difficult, more difficult to find a guy who can field third base effectively than it is someone who could play DH or first base or what have you. And so you need somebody with the agility and the other skills to handle that position such that maybe they're not as big a power hitter or whatever. They might do a lot of things well, but they might not do those big sexy things well. And that's, I think, why Ron Santo took so long to get into the Hall of Fame. Ron Santo was always a deserving Hall of Famer, but he didn't have those big flashy numbers. Why? Well, part of it is Ron Santo, you just can't... Finding somebody who can 500 home runs and 3,000 hits and play third base, very difficult. But somebody who could do a lot of things well and field that position magnificently well, Santo falls into that category. But he wasn't Brooks Robinson with the glove who got in you know, largely because he was a pretty good hitter, but he got in basically because of his defense. He wasn't that good, so we can't recognize him. Trammell was a very good defensive uh, player. He was a very good hitter, but he wasn't quite Ozzie Smith with the glove. And so people don't really know what to do with that. And so he doesn't even come close to making the Hall of Fame. This is what you're dealing with. These guys that have this, these diverse skill sets, they're great players. They clearly start to go into the Hall of Fame or at least be recognized as great players, and they're not. They're just not for, for all those reasons. It's not, 
it's not easy. We like things that are easy, and if it's not easy, we don't know what to do with it. That's right. There are 12 third basemen in the Hall of Fame who played in the major leagues, three additional Negro League uh, third basemen. Oh, right. Sorry, you're dealing with a stat geek here. I have those numbers ready at the, at the ready. Spreadsheets no, going here. I Googled it, but I'm trying to pay attention to you. In the book it's one of my least favorite things. I hear it on radio, and if we worked in talk radio at all times, people throw out numbers all the time, and uh, I always find myself going, well, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. So I try to uh, not be the douche to be correcting, but just to you know throw it out there to give well, the actual that's, number. Well, that's 12 in the history of 10, 12, whatever is in the history of baseball. Baseball has been around for 150 years, 12, really? That seems unlikely to me. And we're in this generation. You know, Adrian Beltre's name has come up recently as well. He could be a Hall of Famer. What? Say, people, what? That's impossible. How can Adrian go? Oh, why? That can't be. Well, his batting average is too low, and he didn't hit in Seattle. Well, dude, Seattle suppressed right-handed power more than any stadium in, I don't know, 40 years. It was a death zone for hitters. So he played in that stadium. He was the best defensive third baseman in baseball every year that he played. He still did pretty well in that park. And lo and behold, you turn him loose in Texas and Boston, and now he's just an unbelievable beast. He does, he's hitting him a bunch of homers and batting average and fielding and all that. And we just don't recognize this. We don't understand his talent. We don't understand the type of player that he is, and we don't know what to do with him. He should be, I don't know if he should be in the Hall of Fame now, but if he has a couple more big years, I don't think there's any question that he should be in the Hall of Fame. And by the way, I could make a case for you, for him to be in the Hall of Fame now because third basemen are underrepresented. If you look at his numbers compared to, I don't know, Orlando Cepeda or Jim Rice or whatever, to me he's a better player already. Forget about what's going to happen in the future. He is a better player than those guys already. That's one of my big things with the Hall of Fame is that um, modern players are underrepresented um, in terms of pitchers. Pitchers from the 1800s and the early 1900s are grossly overrepresented. The decades that produced the most Hall of Famers that had the most Hall of Famers playing in them were the 20s and the 30s. Uh, more than about 20 more than happened uh, that when it normalized in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, it's, it's a distortion of history when we only acknowledge players that played uh, before before segregation before World War One. It was uh, it's a different game and errors are underrepresented. Those are actually two of the names you mentioned to Bray and Beltre that I have written down. Another is Lance Berkman. All three of those guys are Already very close to borderline Hall of Famers. Abreu and Berkman are likely done here. Um, those guys are borderline. I don't think anyone sees them like that. The great thing about Beltre is we forget he came into the league when he was 19 years old. Beltre is going to put everything aside. He's going to put, you know, we're not going to need advanced numbers to get Beltre into the Hall of Fame because Beltre will very likely end up with 400 home runs and 3,000 hits. No third baseman has ever done that. So his traditional numbers will get him in as well. Yeah, presumably it'll happen eventually, but it's just funny that people are looking at it now and they can't fathom a scenario where he can get it. How could that be? And it's just, it has to do with this, you know, park effects and walks and well, I didn't walk that much, but defense and, and these things that it's just, they're hard to understand home runs, ball go boom. I like it. He in, I mean, it's just, we're just simple that way. And you know, and I'm not saying I never fall into it too. I'm sure I do as well. It's just human nature. The easy is is preferable over the difficult. Yeah, and the thing with Beltre too is he fits the reason. One, several of the reasons which I've sort of um, looked at as to why players can get underrated. Beltre hits the example on many of them. Um, one of one of the reasons that players can get underrated, and this is a fascinating one, is if they have a historic, like great season and then never replicate it. Beltre had one of the best years that a third baseman has ever had, but he's yeah. never come close to that year he had with the Dodgers. Thus, people get underrated. I remember Beltre uh, in fantasy baseball that following year. He was like a top pick. Everyone was going crazy. He went to Seattle, and he really, he didn't have a good year. I know Seattle squashed his numbers, but they squashed, they shouldn't squash them that much. To go from where he was with the Dodgers to Seattle, that was just a huge drop-off. That's one of the reasons why players can get underrated, is when they have a career historic year and never replicate it, people then diminish their accomplishments. Another way players can get underrated is if they play with a teammate who is either better or gets more attention. With Beltre's case, certainly with the last few years. That's true with Josh Hamilton. Uh, Another example is that they're not associated with one team, which again is true with Beltre. Beltre fits several of the reasons, in addition to the obvious ones of not excelling at any particular one thing, especially the sexy things. Beltre is not going to lead the league in home runs or in batting average or in RBIs. He doesn't excel in any one thing except for defense, which people don't really care about unless you're Ozzie Smith or Brooks Robinson. That's right, and I think you just made a case for Tim Raines, too, by the way, my favorite player of all time, and uh... Rains30.com is a Tim Raines advocacy site that I co-run with a couple other guys. It's a little bit out of date, but it has all kinds of facts and so forth. 
And my favorite, if you want to talk about a guy who plays every uh, his whole career with one team who gets a lot of credit and somebody who gets less credit, and there are more reasons, but it has to do with teams because Reigns played for a few. Tim Reigns reached base more times in his career than Tony Gwynn. I could give you a lot of other stats, but I always find that one amazing. More times on base than Tony Gwynn. But Tony Gwynn's times on base were hits. They weren't walks. And so Tony Gwynn easily got over 3,000 hits. Tim Reigns did not. I don't know what to do with the locks, don't know what to do with the doubles, don't know what to do with Tim Reigns playing for three teams and Gwynn playing for one. And there are all these things that muddle it up. And I'm not saying that Tony Gwynn, by the way, is an inferior player to Tim Reigns. I love Tony Gwynn. He's great. But you have to tell me, you have to at least be convinced that they're somewhat in the same ballpark. The fact that Reigns is having so much trouble getting to 50% and Gwynn breezes in on the first ballot with Cal Ripken, by the way, who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, certainly, but another guy who played for one team and developed uh, a reputation that well, it's hard because I don't want to say it was above his numbers because Ripken really was a phenomenal player, but Ripken is deified in baseball for various reasons. And it's just funny to me how these things work. I think you hit it on the head. And again, we just have trouble. What are we going to do with these guys that don't fall into my ideal of what a player looks like? Derek Jeter is an ideal of what a baseball player should look like. Played for one team, played for, he benefited from playing with great teammates. I'm not saying he wasn't a great player. But a lot of the reason that he won all those World Series is because of Bernie Williams and Jorge Posada and Andy Pettit and, and all these other guys. So he gets the benefit of that. He plays for one team. He's handsome. He plays shortstop. He's with the Yankees. He has a single-digit number. This is the archetype of a guy. Nobody's ever going to get 100% of the vote because people are dicks. But, yep. I mean, he, he should. You know, He absolutely should, both on accomplishment and on reputation. He has this pristine reputation. And there are just all these guys. You know, Alan Trammell. He's not that far off from Derek Jeter. He didn't have the counting stats. He didn't hang around as well as much. But he was a great, great, great player. And he's not even not even in the same zone, you know, for just all these reasons that have nothing to do with performance, really. Yeah, and it's fascinating. And both Tremel and Reigns, all the numbers I look at, have them both in. They both both meet standards with advanced numbers and with conventional numbers. Yep. It's just it's just the sniff test. I think both suffer from comparison a little bit. Um, I think Trammell should be in. I think he's one of the better players not in, at least one of the better players who has not been associated with gambling or steroids, which are the two right. things that keep people out. Um, but he's not as good as Ripken. There's really very few numbers, if any, that suggest that. He, he suffers from comparison, and of course, Rain suffers from this the most. Rain's had the misfortune of being born around the same time as Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson, who played left field the same time as Reigns, who was a better fielder, a better base runner, a better hitter, got on base more. He did everything that Tim Reigns did, better runner, and he did it better. So just because Tim Reigns isn't one of the 20 best players to play the game, uh, because he's not the greatest leadoff hitter of all time, he might be number two. That doesn't mean he's not a Hall of Famer. He was not as good as Ricky Henderson, but that does not mean he is not a Hall of Famer. He should be in. I think both of those guys will get in by the Veterans Committee. I know the BBWAA put down some of the Veterans Committee, but the Veterans Committee is in place for a reason. It's yep. a, it's in place because players know that Alan Trammell and Tim Raines belong in the Hall of Fame. That's right. And by the way, Ricky Henderson, one of the 15 best players ever to play baseball. Bill James used to say if you split him in half, you'd have two Hall of Famers, that he was a power guy and a speed guy. And, you know, he just all did all these things well. That's not bad at all. And, and the comparison thing is so funny to me. So what? Mickey Mantle shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame because his career vaguely crossed over with Willie Mays? Come on, man. I mean, you know, this stuff is... It's crazy and silly, and, and Reigns played in Montreal, and there's just all these reasons that have nothing to do with anything. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, maybe I do understand because it's an easy versus hard thing, but just can't you open a book? Can't you go back and look at things? Can't you just pay attention? I mean, I feel like, you know, I've applied for BBWA membership. I didn't get in last time. There's a better chance I'll get in this time because Granlin was new, and they were trying to figure out what to do with Granlin. Let's say I get in this time, this winter, when I go to the winter meeting. So 10 years from now, I get to vote. I'm going to take it really damn seriously. You know, I do have a lot of uh, uh, what you'd call off the top of head statistical knowledge. I can recite for you Reigns' whatever career stolen base percentage, and I could tell you roughly how many so-and-sos Henderson hit and, and Ralph Kiner and a lot of players. I have that in my head. But I'm still, even with all that stuff, going to sit down and crunch the numbers and give guys a chance. Somebody brought this up to me recently, and this should tell you something because, again, I consider myself open-minded, statistically adept, and whatever. Somebody said, what about Joe Torre for the Hall of Fame? And I said, well, Joe Torre, I don't know. And then I went back and looked at his numbers. Joe Torre was a really good baseball player. Now, forget his managing. Forget a combo deal. Joe Torre was a really good manager. Just by wins above replacement, 73 wins above replacement. Do you know how many Hall of Famers that beats out? Beats the pants off of Tim Raines, who I advocate for every day. 
I mean, beat the pants off of many, many guys who were in there already. And he played a lot, not a, not his whole career, but he played many games at catcher. This guy was a beast. The thing is that he played in an era where offense wasn't as obvious to see. You know, you play in the 70s and so forth. It was a terrible offensive era, and so we lose sight of that a little bit. There's another player. He wasn't quite as good as Joe Torre, but there was a guy named Jimmy Wynn. He was a center fielder who played in Houston and a couple other places. He was great for his era, but he had low batting averages and high walks, and he didn't hit quite as many home runs because he played in a park that didn't allow for it and certainly in an era that didn't allow for it. But he was a great, great player. We just miss out on these things. Again, even people who think that they're open-minded and so forth – Miss it. And so I would hope, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, if I get a Hall of Fame vote, I'm going to agonize over it and I'm going to look at it. And if I want to vote over 10 guys, I will, or two guys, whatever the merits of it are, that's what's going to happen. I wish that people took it that seriously. You know, you get the vote at the ballots in December. You're probably sitting on a beach at some point. So pick up a pina colada, open up a damn laptop, and spend a couple hours. What is the problem? Why is that so difficult? I really wish people would do that. Well, I agree. And Joe Torre should be in, by the way. He is a top 10 catcher all time. And when you think about that, a game that has 150 years of history, to be a top 10 player at your position and not enshrined in the Hall of Fame is a mistake. People often mention Ted Simmons, Gene Tennis, Thurman Munson, Bill Freehand, and Jorge Posada will fall into that group as well. Torrey's better than all of those guys. Those guys fall slightly below the standards. They're borderline. There is an element of subjectivity here. If you made a case for any of those guys, Tennis, Munson, Freehand, Posada, you're not wrong. You're not really right either. But Torrey falls above all of them, and uh, and he should be in. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because I feel, I feel like one of the most flawed things with the Hall of Fame voting process, and maybe, I don't know, this has always been my nature where I remember as a kid when, uh, when all-star ballots would come out at games and people would just vote for the Red Sox. And it used to drive me crazy. I would really just – I would just be like, I really want to vote for the best players. Now, at the time, I was eight and probably looking at batting average and RBI like everybody else at the time. But I was re- very concerned with like, how could you vote for Marty Barrett? This is embarrassing. This is not right. And I was very concerned with trying to get the best players in. With the Hall of Fame, I really feel like the Hall of Fame – Especially when you consider what it is. It's baseball's highest honor. It is the museum of baseball's past to honor great players. Should ask the voters. I think all votes should be made public, and I think they should all be accompanied by a written explanation as to your decision. Tell me why you voted for someone. Tell me what numbers you looked at. Tell me what Hall of Famers you compared him to. Tell me what who amongst his contemporaries you compared him to. I'm not asking for a novel, a paragraph or two behind your decision-making process. Make it public. I think that would go a long way. Yeah, no, that that's all right. I don't really have uh, any argument with any of that. And, uh, you know, the people that have the ballots, once you get a vote, uh, it's yours forever. There are people who have been out of baseball for so long who literally have not covered the sport for 25 years, and they're going to get to vote on whoever, Andy Pettit, Mike Messina. You know, these guys that are good players and it's going to be tough to see or whatever – and I don't even know how they're going to do it. You know, you don't. You could use numbers, but they're not going to use numbers. You could watch a game, but they probably didn't watch a game all that much because they're covering football. Or heck, they're retired. They're 85 years old and so forth. If we can strip people of driver's licenses, which should be, you know, arguably a right, whatever, but if you want to do that when they're 65 or 70, you would think that you would strip a Hall of Fame vote from somebody's hands when they haven't been following the sport for 30 years. You would think that that would happen, too. It's a flawed process. You know, there's never going to be a perfect process, and I get that. And you don't want to strip people of votes just because you don't agree with them or just because they're old or whatever. There are people – listen, I respect my elders, and they, they all have a lot of things to say, and and I get that. But there are just times when the decisions are so silly, and they have to do with just – you don't have the institutional knowledge. I mean, there are people who vote for the Hall of Fame who live and breathe it, who treat it seriously, you know, who are – who follow the sport and they respect numbers at least enough to understand what they're doing. And these people are so worlds apart by some of the voters that are out there. It just it amazes me that some of these people still have a ballot. Amazes me. And it's fascinating because every journalist at one point who has been in a locker room has faced the question from a player, why should we take you seriously if you've never played the game? And it's, of course, ridiculous because covering a sport and playing a sport are two very different skills. And there's no doubt that playing a sport is more, the more impressive skill. Everybody knows yeah. that. And there's, yeah. there's no overlap here. There's, there's, there's far fewer people who can play shortstop that can write a column. We all know this. But evaluating talent and writing are two separate skills as well. And while there is some overlap there, 
I'd like to see a system that uses people who evaluate talent for their living. I'd like to see GMs vote. I'd like to see scouts vote. I'd like to see front office people vote. I'd like to see writers vote as well, but writers that are qualified. The thing that you tied upon it a little earlier about writers who uh, no one gets 100%. Let's get rid of that tradition. There will be people next year in 2014 that don't vote for Greg Maddox. You know what should happen to them? They shouldn't be voting anymore. I'm fully aware of the history. I understand that Babe Ruth didn't get in with 100%, that Ted Williams didn't get in with 100%, that Willie Mays didn't get in with 100%. Instead of honoring a tradition of buffoonery, perhaps we should get rid of the buffoons. Well, let me allow yet another really stupid comparison there used to be a tradition of slavery in this country, too, and then we suddenly got rid of that. I don't know. You just get, you get rid of flawed tradition. Again, I've compared, let's see, Paul Potts and Barry Bonds, me to Steve Jobs, and slavery <laughs> to the Hall of Fame process. But at least I'm fully aware that I'm doing these things. The point is, yeah, anything that's flawed, you have to fix it. And this is not as bad as slavery, but it is a problem, and you need to fix it. And uh, it would be nice to do that. It would be nice. The problem is... You know, who is deciding on who's going to get in the Hall of Fame? Who's deciding who makes up the body of the Hall of Fame? The actual hall, the actual people that administer the hall, say that they're happy with the Baseball Writers Association of America. I think this goes back to something has to do with the debate of it. People get agitated about the debate. Maybe that's good for the attendance in Cooperstown. I don't know, maybe the fact that, uh, whatever, that people had to advocate for 14 years for Jim Rice before he got in. Maybe that means that Jim Rice is going to get more attention in the hall. I don't really know. I'm not an expert in human psychology. I don't know, but it's possible. But whatever the case, if they're happy with it, there's nowhere to go because the Baseball Writers Association of America they're certainly not going to be the one to put the hammer down on themselves. So, you know, this would have to be a situation where literally Major League Baseball or somebody else would need to step in. And this is a private institution. It's still a museum in upstate New York that does these things and, and draws these policies, same as the football or the basketball museum or whatever. Yes, it represents the game. I would submit to you that it probably should have at least some central input, at least some, and not just be completely autonomous. There should be some common sense attached. But who's it going to come from? It's always about who's got the will and who's got the power. And in this case, the will and the power rest in the hands of people in, in upstate New York, and it rests in the hands, by extension, of the Baseball Radio Association of America, who will not change the process. You're right, it should change. I just don't see it changing. Now, I agree, and it's unfortunate as uh, uh, the Hall of Fame and, the, and we look what's happening. Bonds and Clemens aren't getting in. Uh, Bagwell and Piazza aren't going to get in. Certainly Sosa, Maguire, and Palmero aren't going to get in. Um, when you ignore a generation of players, which is really what's happening, you're going to ignore a generation of fans. When you ignore a generation of fans, you become boxing and horse racing, and I don't want the Hall of Fame to become that. Well, Nick Punto, I think, has still got a chance, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Jonah Carey. You can check out Jonah's podcast and read his stuff on Grantland. Jonah, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Jonah Carey right there. Really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you enjoyed listening as well. Again, you can check out Jonah's book, The Extra 2%, How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Baseball Team from Worst to First. You can find that on Amazon, iTunes, wherever else books are sold. Give Jonah a follow on Twitter at Jonah Carey. Many thanks to him for taking the time, and a lot of it. We went over an hour there uh, to take the time out of his day and join me on the podcast. I want to thank a few more people before I wrap things up entirely. Thanks to my friend Zach Milliken. Zach is a graphics designer. He really helped me get my websites, rosscarry.com and replacementlevelpodcast.com, up and running. He continues to help with some of the day-to-day maintenance and overall look and feel of the site. So if you're interested in graphics design or in web design, you're looking for someone to follow on Twitter, you can give Zach a follow at ZachDM, Z-A-C-K-D-M, or check out his websites, paintedx.com and designtypes.tv. Also want to thank two bands for letting me use their music. Thanks to Baker for letting me use the song Reputation in the opening theme. And thanks to Scamper for letting me use their song Barcelona, which is playing right now. You can find out more information on both of those bands on MySpace Music. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. I'll have a new episode up soon. <laughs>